You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 23rd of October. And on the show today, as UAE laws change to allow couples to have babies via surrogacy, we found out how it will work with family lawyer Byron James. And while he was in the studio, we also asked him whether couples can really get married virtually now in Abu Dhabi, because that is what the headlines have been telling us. Meanwhile, the authorities in Oman have announced a two-day public holiday because Cyclone Tej is intensifying into a Category 3 storm. Geophysics expert Dr Diana Francis told us whether it is likely to impact us here in the UAE. And actors on strike in Hollywood have been told not to dress up as characters like Spider-Man or Barbie this Halloween. Our entertainment business correspondent, Professor Reed Alexander, joined us from California to explain why. And as drugs companies making those popular weight loss diabetes injections start testing them on six-year-olds, we asked whether they really are the right option for children. Pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Kaushik Gupta joined us to talk us through the pros and cons. Plus, we took a look at how these medicines are changing consumer habits as Nestle announced they're developing products to accompany drugs like Azempic. Producer Jennifer Crichton reported on the subject. And if you've ever had one person ruin a group photograph, don't worry, because Google's magic editor can make it all better. But what are the implications of that? Do we really want every family picture to be magazine perfect? Well, Andrew Purcell, who is a professional photographer and a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of South Wales, had very strong views indeed. And last but not least, the fabulous Chris McCarty, our very own head of sport, joined us with all the latest weekend action with news from both the cricket and the Rugby World Cups. We're going to start off with a look at a new family law in the UAE. That is, of course, as the country continues to modernise its uh, family law sector. We've had all sorts of changes in the last couple of years, uh, all sort of designed to make the country more appealing to the expat population. There's been lots of changes uh, specifically down in Abu Dhabi on how you can get married in a civil court there. That's proving very popular. And in fact, we're going to turn our attention to that in a few minutes because I've seen a headline that suggests that you can now get married virtually. That sounds like a headline rather than a fact, but we will get into the details of that in the next few minutes. But the real topic that I want to talk about today is a change involving the surrogacy laws. Now, it was previously illegal to have a baby by surrogacy in the UAE, but that has now changed. And I can imagine that for childless couples or couples who are trying to have another baby and they're really struggling. They've tried all the sort of, I don't want to say, I suppose, natural. They tried all the natural routes. They tried IVF. They tried all sorts of things. Um, But they've been left in a situation where surrogacy is the only option for them. Um, Now, of course, it's going to be allowed to happen here in the UAE and that will really change families' lives. Let's find out a little bit more about it. Joined in the studio by Byron James, partner and head of the expatriate law team here in the UAE. He specialises in all aspects of family law, uh, from divorce to, you know, disputes involving children. And of course, is very up to date with any changes to the family law. Byron, thanks for coming into the studio. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning. Good to see you. Tell me a bit more about the change to this law, because, you know, it's really interesting when you just see things written down in in black and white and and, and the sort of the simple print hides, you know, a really emotional story for couples who haven't been able to have a baby here through surrogacy until now. Well, I think the starting point is to say, as you've already said, that surrogacy previously was not allowed in the UAE. And the change that the law has made is to uh, decriminalise surrogacy. And so now what the next step is for each Emirates to come up with its own law as to how it wishes to deal with surrogacy, which is a very complicated topic because um, you're putting a lot of trust in a particular individual to uh, carry a child for you. There are different types of surrogacy and uh, there are very complicated surrogacy agreements that people need to enter into with um, the third party. And of course, the law 
will need to regulate that relationship, but also regulate what happens on birth. And of course, surrogacy is um, used all over the world and it's used in lots of different ways. So one thing we'll have to keep a close eye on is how does each Emirates decide to regulate this very complicated topic? So I actually have a friend who has gone through the sort of surrogacy process. In fact, I've got more than one friend thinking of it. And, um, you know, as a couple, they decided they wanted a baby. They looked at every single possible route they could. And I know that one family that went to either the US or Canada, I think, and then another family who went to Cyprus. And that is because those two countries have different rules, different laws. And I know that one of the elements that really concerned both of the couples involved was the rights to the child once it's born of the mother, of the woman who's carried the child. Obviously, it's important not to use the word mother, but of the the person who's carried the child. And and I know that that can be a real concern for families, as you can imagine. So surrogacy is a very complicated topic, and there are lots of different types of surrogacy. So one type is called gestational surrogacy, and that's where you use the egg from the mother and the sperm from the father, and it's simply just being carried by a third party. And there are lots of good reasons for that often because people have been medically advised that carrying a child might be dangerous for them. There's um, heart conditions and all kinds of things that can affect you during pregnancy that would make it medically unadvisable to do that. And so that's why lots of people utilise it. But um, the, the process of giving birth, so previously in the UE, the person who gave birth would be considered the mother. But obviously when you've got something like gestational surrogacy, where the DNA, if you like, of the child is purely the mother and the father and not connected to the person who gave birth, then that complicates things. And so, as you correctly say, that complexity is dealt with in lots of different ways all over the world. I know, for example, in some states in America, you're required to adopt the child when they are born. Goodness. Um, because, of course, you know, you're, you're dealing with... Um, when somebody gives birth, norm, obviously you're, you're deviating from what is considered orthodox, but for a very important reason. So how about the the other type of surrogacy where, for example, the egg it comes from another person and the sperm comes from the father, potentially in the, in the couple, and then it's carried by a third person. Is that going to be allowed here in the UAE as well? We don't know. So all that we know at the moment is that surrogacy will be allowed. And then, as I said before, it's up to each emirate to decide how they regulate um, each instance in the emirates of surrogacy. There are also implications for the women who carry the child, aren't there? For example, I know in the United Kingdom, you're not allowed to pay women to carry children. You're allowed to pay expenses. So these are all the things that need to be regulated. It's very complicated. The, The thing I would say... To anybody listening, the most important thing is before you enter into any sort of arrangement, whether it's in the UE or anywhere else, you must take legal advice. The surrogacy agreements that are drafted up are very complicated because and very important. And it's very important for all the things you're saying that you have transparency with anyone you're having this arrangement with and all of those scenarios are catered for. Um, Because obviously the worst case scenario is to be in disputes with somebody either before or during a pregnancy, that is something you absolutely would want to avoid. And you're quite right to say that things like medical expenses, very important to be dealt with. Um, What if there are complications? Um, You want to have it all dealt with before you enter into that sort of arrangement. So we are a little bit of a long way, potentially, from surrogacy actually happening here in the UAE. Or do you, I mean, the UAE does do things very quickly. Could you think we could see Emirates-specific laws within the year? Or do you think it could take longer? I'm very impressed with the way that they deal with legislation. So I would expect it to happen soon. And of course, the other thing to bear in mind is that in the UAE, they have world-class medical facilities The thing that I'm really interested to see is the extent to which it could be available for medical tourists. So is it going to be a centre for people to come to the UAE, taking advantage of the incredible hospitals and doctors that work here um, so that they can then um, provide those services to people who aren't residents as well as residents? I think that's something to look out for. Do you think that the implications of that could be quite manifold? Do you think we could result in quite a lot of surrogacy cases here in the UAE? I think, I think it would be because of the combination of the medical facilities mm. um, and uh, obviously I have to see the law, I think it is likely to be very popular. 
I think there there are lots of uh, families or people who want to start families who can't. Mm. And surrogacy performs a very important role for those people. And so I don't see any reason why those people wouldn't be taking advantage of it here in the UE. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, for the two families that I know, it, you know it's truly life-changing. You know, it was... they. These two couples thought they wouldn't be able to have a baby, and and you know they, now they both have wonderful families. So I know that it can really. Well, there are a lot. So having having a family is obviously a very emotional topic, and for those people who struggle and be able to go through IVF, for example, and struggle, it can dominate their entire lives. And of mm. course, the other thing, it's extremely expensive, mm. and it takes an enormous toll on uh, people's bodies as well. And so what this does is provide another way. And that's always a good thing. Very exciting stuff. A very serious topic. I'm going to turn to it to something that's a little bit more lighter hearted now. Um, there have been, you know, changes to the regulations regarding getting married. We've covered them with you, in fact, here on um, on the agenda. Mainly the laws in Abu Dhabi have changed a lot, but Dubai is catching up as well. Is it right that you can now get married via video conference? Not yet. Okay. But, but I Not think, yet. But, Not, wait a second. Not but, yet. But you will be able to, I think, soon. Really? Yes. Well, just to give you the other end of the uh, journey, if you like, for some people, not everyone, all the divorce proceedings take place remotely. And so in some ways, I guess the logical conclusion is that getting married remotely makes some sense. But hang on a second. Who is remote? Like one would presume as a couple you're together and the judge or the the person marrying you is remote or are all three of you separate? So again, we haven't got the specific legislation that sets out how this will work. Okay. But I just think the principle of remote uh, engaging with government services remotely, things like the civil family court in Abu Dhabi, is quite normal and quite usual. I mean, when COVID happened, I think a lot of people looked at the way that they did um, their day-to-day business, including courts, and courts all over the world, including in England, but also in Abu Dhabi and in the UAE, uh, they conduct things remotely and they do it perfectly efficiently. And in the end, as long as you can verify somebody's abil- identity when they're logging on, and as long as somebody has access to the correct technology that allows them to be able to participate in the hearing correctly, I mean, in the end, I know this isn't, I'm a divorce lawyer, so forgive me for this, but in the end, marriage is a contractual performance, a ceremony. There's obviously a nice romantic element to it as well, not forgetting that, but the the legal aspects of it, um, they need to comply with formalities. And so there are various formalities, they change in all different countries around the world. But in Abu Dhabi, for example, um, as long as you satisfy certain criteria, which you can do by uh, filling in all the forms online. Attending in person, really, if that can be done remotely, then is it really that necessary? Would you have to be resident in the country, though? Or do you think they could be marrying two people in, I don't know, well, Guatemala? In Abu Dhabi, you don't have to be a resident to get married. So you can, you, can no be a, you can be a tourist and get married in Abu Dhabi. You just have to apply for the licence. Okay, we've seen a lot of changes to the family laws here in the UAE recently. Do you have a sense of sort of what the government is trying to do with these changes? You know, is there an overarching theme that you've seen? I think the starting point is there has definitely been a revolution in family law, and it's an extremely impressive one, particularly what is happening in Abu Dhabi. The Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court, I mean, I I now have cases in there every week uh, representing uh, expatriates from all over the UAE, actually. And in fact, I have uh, people who live in Dubai who take up residency in Abu Dhabi to take advantage of the court. It's so impressive. I think everything comes under the umbrella of moving away from the personal status law for people for whom it doesn't apply culturally. Because uh, I think what was happening was lots of expatriates were bringing family law cases in their home countries because they were looking to take advantage of outcomes which were maybe more culturally relevant, but also in financial remedy cases. So that's the financial uh, applications on a divorce. Um, The personal status law doesn't really deal with high net worth or ultra high net worth cases in a very comprehensive way. And so, I mean, we don't have time to go through it all right now, but very simply, um, there is remedies, for example, in England, where you can apply for financial remedies after a foreign divorce. And so divorces in uh, under the personal status law were often not conclusive when it came to the finances. And for a lot of expatriates, they didn't want the personal status law, so gender-defined roles of guardian and custodian dealing with their child arrangements. Because for lots of expatriate people, they share care of children and they don't want to be uh, uh, have their roles determined by their gender. 
And so what we are seeing is a secularization, if you like, of family law. And so for those people who are not Muslim or in the Abu Dhabi uh, Civil Family Court, not local, because just to remind you, you can apply in the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court if you're a Muslim from a non-Muslim country. They want to try and apply a, a law that doesn't discriminate on gender, doesn't discriminate on religion, and gives people a starting point, so things like joint custody on divorce and more comprehensive financial orders, so that they they can look at the courts in, in the UAE, particularly as I say in Abu Dhabi, as providing a comprehensive uh, outcome for them on a divorce. And that's really important. And I can say that you know, one of the other things about the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court is it takes place in English as well as Arabic. Um, a lot of the um, court staff there are English. There are some English lawyers who work there. And so the uh, ability for people to go through that court, it's very user-friendly. And so for people having the ability to have their family law matters dealt with here rather than back home is extremely valuable. I've got about 30 seconds left with you and I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball, which I know lawyers don't like to do. Are there any changes to the family law that you're anticipating? You know, any more that you're looking forward to ostensibly? The big one is Dubai. So, and and actually the whole of UE. So we have the non-Muslim family law on the 1st of February uh, published, but we don't yet have the regulations. When those regulations come out, we'll know a lot more about how non-Muslim family law is going to be applied across the UAE. And that's going to be very interesting to see how that works. Any sense of when we might get it? You Any never day, know. Hopefully. Any day. Hopefully. Any day. I will let you know. Fantastic. Well, we'd be sure to get you in to explain it all when it does happen. Uh, Byron James, thank you so much for your time. Partner and head of the expatriate law team uh, here in the UAE. Thank you so much for your time. Really interesting stuff. Thank you. Thank you. We are in for a spot of weather over the next week here in the UAE. That is as Cyclone Tej is bearing down on Oman. Now, the Sultanate has declared a two-day public holiday in the Dofar region of the country. And that's as the latest satellite images uh, from their early warning centre indicate that it's turning into a Category 3 cyclone. Now, I have to admit, I'm not all that good with, with cyclones and, and sort of how powerful they are and, and what it means. So I looked it up and the general gist is that psych, uh, Category 3 cyclones bring very heavy rain and that can lead to flooded valleys. You're to expect gusty winds of 40 to 70 knots, which may also uproot trees. Now, obviously, we wanted to find out whether there will be implications for us here in the UAE. So earlier, I spoke to geophysics expert Dr. Diana Francis. She's from the Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. And she explained what we can expect in Oman. Tropical cyclones in the Arabian Sea are natural uh, weather events that happen especially in the pre-monsoon and after-monsoon season, meaning around May and June and October, November. In our region, these are the most uh, prominent periods for the tropical cyclones. Of course, tropical cyclones are tied to tropical oceans. So in our case, it's the Indian Ocean. And sometimes their path, they can take different pathways. This one is heading towards Southern Arabian Peninsula, so particularly uh, Oman and Yemen. And normally it will make landfall today. So basically the tropical cyclones, when they approach landmass, they will not get enough energy to be sustained from the water. So they will just make landfall and die. They've declared a two-day public holiday in some areas of Oman that sort of slightly indicates that they are concerned for potentially loss of life or, or they think the cyclone could be quite dangerous. Is it sort of stronger than normal cyclones? Yes, this one, it looks like uh, it's a bit strong over, over water. So precaution is always better than, you know, regretting uh, not taking measures, especially that now we know that with global warming, we can expect for each one degree of warming for the atmosphere to hold more 7% of water vapor. So when we say more more water vapor in a cyclone, we mean more rain that will come from the cyclone. And uh, of course, in areas where there are wadis or uh, in the islands, this can be dangerous and uh, life-threatening. So it's better to be cautious about it. How about the impact on people living here in the UAE? Are we likely to experience dangerous weather here? Uh, not, really, not really. This one is not going to affect the UAE because its trajectory is really towards Yemen and West Oman, so Salalah basically. So it won't be any effects on the weather in the UAE. 
Really? So we won't even potentially see rain or anything like that? Uh, I, I really doubt it because it's uh, too far. And uh, by the time it reaches the south of Saudi Arabia, it will, it will be, you know, uh, just vanishing over land. Dr. Diana Francis there, geophysics expert from the Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. You can almost hear my disappointment that there won't be any rain. In fact, the UAE has uh, been seeing a bit of uh, weather fluctuations over the last couple of days. Certainly, uh, rain fell on Sunday in Fajera uh, and in the north of the country. But I'm... As you hear from that, we're not going to get a bit any knock-on effect uh, from the cyclone in Oman. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, the strike by the film and TV actors in Hollywood actually hit 100 days over the weekend. The negotiations are due to resume tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, So far, the talks are not going well, it's fair to say. The actors' demands have been described by the studios as exorbitantly expensive. And apparently the two sides are just too far apart to even sort of really continue talks last week. Meanwhile, in a sort of bizarre twist, actors on strike have been told not to dress up as characters like Spider-Man or Wednesday Adams or even Barbie this Halloween to avoid promoting the studios. The SAG-AFRA union has issued guidelines saying that instead actors uh, should take inspiration from more generalised ghosts, zombies or spiders. That was their specific wording. Now, um, earlier I spoke to Professor Reed Alexander. He's our entertainment business correspondent at Insider. And he told me that the instruction has really created quite a lot of disagreement between the union and its members. So here we are many months into the actor's strike in Hollywood and the actors and the studios are having significant discord at the negotiating table. So the actors union and SAG-AFTRA has been rallying the troops to get out to the picket lines and take a strident stand against the studios and the networks and the streamers to project strength, to show them that the 160,000 members of the Actors Union stand resolved on strike and fighting to get the deal that they want to get. Now, there is some dissent in the ranks over this controversial guideline that SAG-AFTRA has issued to its members, to its actors, saying this Halloween... Please do not dress up as characters from struck studios, content, films, television shows, what have you. So I'll give you an example of this. What the union has said is it's warned its members, please don't dress up as Barbie, for instance, or please don't dress up as a Marvel superhero because Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe are owned by Disney, of course. And Disney is sort of one of the standard bearers of Hollywood, the most iconic companies. So what the union has said is, here are the things that you should be wearing this Halloween as you go trick-or-treating and crash your friend's Halloween party. Go as a generic ghoul or goblin or spider or you know something that doesn't really have a direct link to any kind of Hollywood content that could be inadvertently supporting the studios. Because as you well know, this entire time, one of the most important sort of weapons that actors have been able to brandish in their fight has been not being able to promote any content that they had pre-made before the strike started that's coming out during the strike. So if you were an actor, let's say, involved with Barbie or Oppenheimer, they were not able, they were not permitted to go and actively promote those projects on the morning shows or on even the red carpets and attend their premieres in some cases. So this is one more lever that the union is trying to pull here in its fight But it's prompted swift backlash from its members who have really ridiculed the rule and said, come on, guys, does anyone actually think this is what's going to cow the studios that we're not going to dress up as Iron Man this year? (laughs) So it's prompted (laughs) a lot of uh, a, a lot of criticism in Hollywood. Yeah. So who has been reacting and how have they been reacting? Is it mostly been on social media? It's largely been on social media that we have seen high profile actors come out to criticize uh, you know, this guideline from SAG-AFTRA. We've seen it on Twitter, you know, now known as X. We've seen it on Instagram. The actress Mandy Moore saying, quote, is this a joke? Come on, SAG-AFTRA. This is what's important. We're asking you to negotiate on our behalf in good faith. So many folks across every aspect of this industry have been sacrificing mightily for months. Get back to the table and get a fair deal so everyone can work. And the actor Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively's husband, of course, and a famous actor in his own right, an entrepreneur saying, quote, I look forward to screaming scab at my eight-year-old daughter all night. Uh, She's not in the union, but she needs to learn. And that, of course, is a joke that he's making, suggesting that if his daughter were to dress up as a character from, say, a struck project, 
he would accuse her of being a scab, which in union parlance is somebody who, uh, you know, violates or crosses the picket line and violates the, uh, the labor movement. So actors coming out essentially saying there's a tremendous amount of pain on the picket lines and a tremendous amount of pain amongst people who have been sacrificing paychecks, sacrificing income, and essentially accusing SAG-AFTRA, their own negotiators in this case. And by the way, a very rare instance that we have seen of public dissent uh, of wasting time and manufacturing rules that are ineffective and take everyone's eyes off the ball. It's very, very rare to see that kind of discord spill out into public view during a union movement. So I actually think it suggests that there's a lot of aggravation inside the union from people who just want to get back on the job. Professor, yeah, I can imagine that after 100 days and more now, people must be finding it very difficult indeed, because, of course, they're not getting any money in, are they? No, that's exactly right. You know, some people are collecting residual pay, but a big part of this fight has been that that is dwindling. So perhaps it's negligible for people. And they've sacrificed months and months and months of work in order to be able to do this, to fight for some of these protections. But, you know, negotiations have really hit some icebergs. SAG-AFTRA is headed back to the negotiating table to meet with negotiators from the group called the AMPTP. That's the consortium that represents the studios and the streamers. But nobody will work again until the strike has lifted and uh, there is a contract in place with new minimums and new protections and guarantees. But listen, to win that kind of a contract, it becomes something of a pyrrhic victory because you have to fight really till the last man standing and it becomes so bitter and acrimonious and people forfeit so much income and so much opportunity. I mean, we know that the California economy has lost $5 billion during the course of both the actor strike and the writer strike that recently ended. So that was from May to September. So it's honestly probably a higher figure than that. And actors have absolutely been a part of that loss. And they see their counterparts, their peers from the writers union, the WGA, who were able to end their strike last month. And they're starting to get back to work and starting to generate new ideas and new content. And I think a lot of them wonder, well, why hasn't that accelerated our efforts to get us back to work? So I think people understand that there is a fight to be waged in premise. But when they see things like this and they're already feeling demoralized and now the union is sort of policing them as to what they can do on Halloween night, it just really feels like, you know, where is the focus being poured into? It should be poured into getting people back on the job as urgently as possible. Professor Reed Alexander there. He's an entertainment business correspondent at Insider, giving us the lowdown there on that ban by the SAG-AFTRA union, uh, telling their members that they shouldn't dress up on Halloween as characters from movies. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here, keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock with The Agenda. And we're looking at a really interesting story on the programme now because a drug company in the United States is moving towards prescribing weight loss diabetes medicines to children as young as six years old. Now, it's quite a way off. Uh, this is a story uh, from Bloomberg, by the way. They say that Eli Lilly is planning a clinical trial of their drug Manjaro for young patients who have obesity. Um, worth mentioning that the company is already conducting a trial on children as young as 10 years old who have type 2 diabetes. So there is a sort of sense that these types of drugs are being used or are being well, they're being looked at to see whether they are appropriate for children. Then you've got Novo Nordisk. Now, that's the company that are they develop Ozempic. They're already conducting late stage trials in children as young as six. Um, now, there's quite a lot of stuff. I mean, Ozempic's very, Ozempic and Manjaro are very much in the news all the time. And uh, there, there have also been a couple of stories suggesting that uh, people who take them may also be at higher risk of serious digestive problems. It is rare. They say it's only about 1%. But tens of millions of people who are taking the drugs worldwide now, I mean, there's literally, I mean, I must know about 20 people who've taken it. Um, and And Therefore, even a 1% risk can mean that the numbers could ramp up of people, you know, struggling with digestive issues. So there's lots of issues in the news. I'm going to focus mostly on this, this idea of prescribing it to children over the next 10 minutes. And I'm joined 
to that end by Dr. Kaushik Gupta. He's a paediatric endocrinologist and a diabetes expert. He works at the Glucare Integrated Diabetes Centre right here in Dubai. Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for joining me on Microsoft Teams. I hope you're well this morning. I know we've caught you in between patients. So thank you so much for joining us on the line. Are children already being prescribed these types of medicines? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Georgia, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Um, so to answer your question, I think um, it's not uh, as simple an answer as that. If we look at the current uh, prescription rate of Ozempic, now FDA has already approved this medication for use for children more than 12-year-olds, so 12 to 18-year-olds as per FDA and American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, they can be prescribed this medication. Uh, the NHS has also accepted this as a treatment. Uh, I think it's about five, six months now. Uh, in this country, we still haven't um, started using this medication in that age group. Uh, however, there is another medication called uh, Succenda that is licensed for use in that age group. Interesting. And are there children who need it, frankly? Uh, I think it's a very difficult question to answer in a few words. Um, We have to keep a bit of an open mind here. We know what obesity is and what sort of epidemic it's turning into. So um, looking at numbers, surely it's quite scary. Um, So let me perhaps give an example. So the data published by... um, uh, U.S. government uh, registry have recommended that, or they have not recommended, but what they have noticed is that a baby or a child that might be obese at the age of two has a chance of being obese at the age of 20 or as an adult in about 80% of cases. So if you have 100 children who are obese at two, there's a likelihood that 20% of them might be um you know, not obese as an adult. So these are scary statistics. We are looking into billions by the year to 2030, perhaps. So what have we got to offer in terms of treatment um, in the children? In adults, of course, as you mentioned, it is slightly easier. So while in children, we are looking at lifestyle interventions as being obviously the first step, um, we have to be uh, quite... uh, pragmatic about the success of lifestyle interventions in children, because obviously, as you know, there are multiple factors involved. There is um, uh, family uh, influence. There is, of course, you know, the perception of of what obesity can be as a complex disease later in life. So children probably don't have this concept at uh, an age of six or 10 or whatever age we are looking at. So we are slightly restricted into what we can use. Of course, medical um, medicines or pharmaceutical interventions would be an option. There is bariatric surgery as well. Um, So I think um, as per guidelines and as per recommendations given by uh, the different societies, the endocrine societies, it should be used if required as an adjunct rather than um, a sole use. And if you look at studies, you've always got more benefit when you have Uh, used lifestyle interventions along with the medication in the published studies. Can I be really blunt? Um, Children, you have control over your children as a parent. You have control, therefore, over what they eat. Surely, if your child is obese, you can just stop them eating unhealthy food. Surely, adding a medication into that mix is, is unnecessary when... Their children, all they need to do is eat less and exercise more. I, mean, I think you've uh, hit a very kind of a sensitive button here. Uh, yes, I absolutely agree. It all begins at home. So um, you'll be really surprised at uh, the concept of portion sizes and what people could eat and how people, are, sorry, the children are exposed to audiovisual aids, for example, while they're eating. So, you know, I think uh, sitting on a dining table as a family is, uh, I don't know, I mean, you can probably take a survey to see how many us, how many of us as families would still do that. 
Um, so, yeah, it always starts from home as family. You know, if you can lead a very normal, healthy life, you wouldn't even need to think of using medications. But unfortunately, you know, this is something which would need uh, discussions at every level to bring about a change. Is that something that is happening when the drugs are being prescribed to children? You know, is it because surely once the children, I mean, this is a concern for adults as well. Once you come off these medicines, your appetite returns. And if you haven't changed your habits, then you're just going to pile the weight back on again. You know, and surely the same would be for children. So it, it's just, I, I, I sometimes worry that these medicines could be just a sort of quick fix that, and then you end up with a yo-yo situation, which is just as bad for, you know, people's mental health as it is for their physical health. Um, I agree. I mean, yo-yo effect would be there nonetheless, even if you try lifestyle interventions to lose weight. Uh, now, what, uh, for example, I mean, if I were to ask you that if we have an obese child and we are trying to um, get them to a proper weight, is it just about looking at the BMI or the improvement in the weight? It's a bit more to that, right? We need to look at the metabolic complications that obesity have. So, um uh, obesity has rather. So, you know, we need to look at the the complications that can be reduced. So if lifestyle can do it, that's fine. But what the studies have shown is that um, you do actually bring down the risks of diabetes and cholesterol or lipid-related disorders later in life. So I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that. You have to have like um, a balanced approach. Uh, of course, you know, both are important, the efficacy of a treatment and also the safety. So it depends on the professional and the family. And uh, more importantly, the treatment should be catered on an individual basis. Have you seen success stories? Because it must be amazing if you've got a, a teenage child who has struggled with the weight for years. And, and obviously there are you know, there's, there's self-image problems there and then you maybe get into the comfort eating and then if you get very big, it is hard to exercise. Have you treated young patients at Glucare and, and see them turn their lives around thanks to these medicines? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, of course, we can't use Ozempic or Munja. Sorry, I'm using brand names. So I'm allowed to do that? Yeah, yeah, you are because they've become like sellotape and Hoover. We people only know them as that. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, as we said, you know, we can't use a Sempic Monjaro in that age group as of now. But I have seen success with a medication called Succenda, which uses another GLP analog um, uh, called Liraglutide. So this is licensed, and um, I think it's back in 2021 that it has been uh, it has been used so we have had reasonable success and i've had i can tell you about at least three or four patients who have had a big change to their life but yes they are still on treatment so to go back to your question whether they will flip back without medications is a long story and all these um, studies unfortunately we don't have long term data it's all based on the success over a period of time, which might be not more than 60 to 70 weeks. So we have got plenty more uh, studies to do. It is fascinating how these medicines are changing people's lives. And, and obviously, you know, the use, their use has just accelerated so quickly that it feels like it's a bit like artificial intelligence. It feels like we're sort of slightly holding on to the horses as they've bolted. Um, so it's very interesting to see how it'll develop. Uh, Dr. Kaushik Gupta, thank you so much for your uh, frank conversation, because I think it is a really important issue. I think even those who are not medics will have quite strong opinions about it. You could probably tell, even though I was trying to be neutral, that I have quite strong views about it. Um, but it was amazing to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Dr. Kaushik Gupta there is a paediatric endocrinologist and diabetes expert at the Glucare Integrated Diabetes Centre based right here in Dubai. Thank you very much indeed for your time. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now we are discussing these uh, new drugs that have become increasingly common. They're the things like Azempic, Wigovi, 
Saxenda, Victoza, do they ring a bell? Basically, they're the um, sort of diabetes drugs that people are using to lose weight. And we've just had news that they're going to start testing them on very young children, on six-year-olds. In fact, Ozempic, or the company that owns it, Novo Nordisk, is already conducting late-stage trials on children as young as six. Now, it's worth mentioning that news of these drug tests does come a couple of weeks after a new study suggested people taking drugs like Ozempic may be at higher risk of serious digestive problems. Now, it's rare. It's only around 1%. But with tens of millions of people taking the medicines worldwide, it's uh, concerning, I suppose, or doctors are concerned, that these numbers could ramp up. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton's been looking at the impact of these medicines on sort of consumer behaviour. There's several really fascinating stories that have come out, haven't there, Jen? Absolutely. And I mean, of course, as you say, it's still very early days with these drugs. And a lot of these side effects, a lot of these studies are still very early. We're still really finding out what they do. But it's now looking as though while we're still finding about these drugs, they're impacting on the way that we shop. And of course, if you know anyone who's been on these drugs, they will change the way that you eat. I've heard of people being very, very sick if they eat things that are too high in sugar, too high in fat. And now the CEO of Walmart in the US is saying that they're seeing the impact of that in people's shopping trolleys with a shift away. Yeah, exactly. And it's very early, but they're already seeing a shift away from high fat and high sugar foods in some markets where there's been a high uptake of these drugs, which are known as, as a group as GLP inhibitors. So... We've also seen just on Thursday, just past, that Nestle, which obviously is a huge producer of food products, but also, and I didn't know this originally, of vitamin supplements, saying that they are seeing a shift in what people are shopping and it's causing them to shift their strategy as a business. Take a look, uh, take a listen, sorry, to the firm's CEO, Mark Schneider, who was outlining his company's nine months financial reports last week. The recent interest in a new class of drugs called GLP-1 agonists has underlined the public's desire to combat obesity rates around the world. I believe we have important contributions to make. Please note that while these drugs offer new therapy options for obese patients and for patients with type 2 diabetes, they are not a permanent solution and are no replacement for an appropriate diet coupled with the right amount of exercise. Now, you might wonder what a food company has to do with talking about nutrition and exercise. But as I mentioned, Nestle is a huge producer of vitamins. And Schneider told shareholders that while he expected consumer behaviour to have an impact on the business, any negatives would be outweighed by opportunities in that arm of the business. For the time that patients spend on these drugs and after, we are already developing a number of companion products. Their goal will be to address the risk of malnutrition, and the loss of lean muscle mass while on the GLP-1 therapy, and to avoid or limit weight rebound after the therapy. With only 15% of our global revenue and 20% of our North American revenue coming from either center-of-the-plate or snacking products, we consider any potential revenue exposure to be very limited. In my judgment, it gets fully compensated by the innovation opportunities I love it when you hear from these top CEOs how they see everything as a business opportunity. You're like, hang on a second, there's a trend there. And then the immediate reaction is, how can I make money out of it? That's it. It's a totally different way of thinking, isn't it? I really need to get a bit more into that way of thinking. But I mean, all of this got us wondering whether this is something that we're seeing an impact of here. Now, this morning I got in touch with Kibsons. They didn't have anyone available to come and join us at short notice, but they did say that so far they've not seen much impact. But of course, a big part of their business is selling fruits and vegetables and things that would be acceptable to people on these drugs in the first place. We also spoke to Tom Harvey, who's the general manager of the commercial arm of Spinney's, and he says, not quite yet, but they're keeping an eye on it. The Spinney's motto is eat well, live well, and we know that a lot of our customers are very focused on their health and wellness and the importance that food can have in that. So we continue to see very strong demand for all of the fresh, delicious, full-on flavour, nutrient-dense, low-on-calorie products that we sell. But we haven't really seen a, a, a discernible change driven by Ozempic and these other drugs coming around because we're also seeing very strong growth in all of the delicious, sweet, indulgent treats that we sell. So nothing that we can 
precisely put on that, but we will continue to monitor and see if there is a trend. Tom Harvey, their general manager of the commercial arm of Spinney's. Well, producer Jennifer Crichton and I will be keeping our eye very much on how this story develops. Uh, as far as the topic of whether or not six-year-olds should be prescribed uh, these GLP-style drugs, I've just learnt that phrase from Jen, <laughs> the GLP inhibitors, um, as far as whether or not children should be prescribed them, it's fair to say that there is quite a high level of cynicism coming through uh, towards Great, uh, big farmer on our text line. Marianne, you're quite right. I can't read out your entire message, uh, <laughs> but I get the gist. <laughs> I get the gist that you don't think it's necessarily a good idea for young children to be prescribed these medicines. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, you're listening to The Agenda. We are here to keep you company all the way through until one o'clock. And uh, we're going to talk about something now that we've all experienced. It is that beautiful family photograph that was completely ruined because one child at the last minute pulls a face just as the camera clicks. Um, we've all got that one child in our family, haven't we? In my family, it's the second child who essentially for about two years refused to smile for the camera. So throughout there, from the age of about five to seven, when we look back in many years to come, everyone's going to think in some way that he was abused or just somehow I was having a miserable life. But it's not true. He had a very happy life, but he just would not smile for the camera. You know, everyone else has these delightful children. You know, some of the little girls even sort of pull poses, you know, from the age of about four um, and look nice and smile on, you know, smile at, at sort of key performance moments. Not my youngest. Um, well, the good news is now I can go back on all those photographs and I can change them because there's a new Google app. It's called Magic Editor. Needless to say, it involves artificial intelligence and it, can, it really is astonishingly powerful. They've got an example on one of the websites and it changes a proper frown into what looks like a genuine smile. But you have to remember, I don't know the person in the picture that they changed the smile. So I don't know whether what looks like a genuine smile could actually just look a bit creepy to his friends. Um, and that is that really goes to the nub of the issue. You know, do we want our family pictures to be sort of magazine perfect? Surely a photograph is meant to be a sort of, you know, a capture of a moment rather than a magazine shoot. And even though my youngest was revolting and, uh, you know, from the age of five to seven and wouldn't smile, that is our family history. You know, that's what he was like. And if I make him smile in all the pictures, am I rewriting our family history? I mean, as you can tell, it's a topic I've given a lot of thought to. And, and fortunately, I'm going to be joined now by an expert who's going to give us his insights as well. Andrew Pearsall, professional photographer, also a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of South Wales in the United Kingdom. He's got up early. It's probably still dark in England. So thank you so much for joining me on the line, Andrew. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, Georgia, from a very wet UK. Yes, you've had storm Babbit or something like that, haven't you? I hope I hope you're all staying safe over there at the moment. We've got a cyclone heading from Oman over here at the moment as well, but I don't oh, think it's going good. to. I don't think it's going to hit the UAE. But tell me what your reaction to this magic editor is of uh, you know as a photographer and also a person in the pursuit of truth in you know in your role as a, as a journalist. I mean, it it does raise an uneasiness um, in my profession. My profession is photojournalism. We teach our students very much from the first the first few weeks that manipulation is something that is not to be done in the world of journalism um, because because journalism is regulated, it can have such a massive impact on society and an image can change governments um, so it's quite worrying, but now it's coming to um, the every average everyday Joe um, you'll be able to manipulate images on your phone now. As you were talking in family photos, that might not be an issue, although I, I like to have my second child screaming at the top of their uh, the voice when we're taking family pictures. I think it gives that, you know, honest reality of life. Um, but children use phones. They could easily take this uh, new piece of software and move things and manipulate things to uh, to better themselves or better or, or even to maybe um, their enemies or their, you know, their, not their enemies, but their their, their friends or their um, friends of friends. They could, they could do all sorts of things which could create 
real issues? And how do we know what has been manipulated and what hasn't? I think there's a responsibility for Google to somehow place in these images some form of detection, AI detection, metadata, to be able for us to to recognise the fact that it has had some element of manipulation. There does seem to be a call along those lines from quite a lot of the authorities, actually. I mean, I think the EU tends to lead on these things, that there is, you know, that we should now be able to see it almost in any picture whether or not it's been digitally altered. I mean, obviously, in adverts, you know, of models and, and actors, we sort of expect it uh, and they're not required to to make any notes there. But maybe now it's entered the public arena. It is time for maybe a, a watermark of some sort. I think very much so. I know that Canon's developing some new blockchain technology. So perhaps Google really needs to sort of push forward some form of placing inside the image, not just metadata. We've been using metadata now as photojournalists for 20 years. We can put captions in. We can find out where exactly the, the image was taken. But that can be manipulated. Um, you've got to think devil's advocate here. The, you know, Think about the worst situation. People will alter images for propaganda purposes to to make you think differently um, and it's not that difficult on a mobile phone so we really need to make sure that these you know big organizations are doing the best that they can to somehow place in these images some form of AI detection, I suppose. Use AI to detect where AI has been used, I suppose. I mean, we're talking about faces with this um, Google, this magic editor from Google, but you can change the mood, the atmosphere, the temperature yeah. of a photograph with just a, a filter, right? Like, what do you teach your students when it comes to, you know, maybe create, maybe making a picture look more moody or more ominous? Um, well, we we follow the World Press Photos guidelines um, for their competition entries. And yes, you can change the contrast, the brightness. You can add some element of tone to that image, but you've always got to submit the original. So they, they shoot in a format called RAW, which is uneditable. You know, you, JPEGs can be edited and changed. You can always go back to a RAW file, I'm told. Um, and it and you can reset it back to the way it was. And people have been found to over manipulate and over edit um, press photography. And um, what usually happens is they're kind of outed and they never work in the industry again. There's this almost like code of conduct within um, with photojournalism that um, you cannot heavily manipulate. You cannot remove things. You cannot add things. You cannot darken down to hide things. Um, and so that is a a sort of set of codes that is that is throughout the whole press industry and anybody that does break those rules will probably never work again in the industry um, but that doesn't that's not for we can't manage that in for everyday people you know if a, an eight-year-old could remove something that wasn't supposed to be there and could cause some kind of controversy or a teenage you know a teenager could do something which they might think is quite fun but as soon as it is published it could you know, it could cause harm to other people. So many things that we've got to, to think about with these with this artificial intelligence and the way it can uh, digitally manipulate not just pictures, but also videos. You know, you've got deep fakes. Uh, and of course, from a radio presenter's point of view, uh, also your voices. Uh, so, yeah, it's a conversation that's going to run on run. Andrew, thank you so much for talking us through the rules for photographers. You would have thought that as a journalist, I'd know what the rules are for professional photographers, but I had no idea that there were so many uh, strict laws around it. Andrew Purcell there, professional photographer and a lecturer, a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of South Wales in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for your time this morning on the agenda. Uh, lots of messages coming through on this, actually. Uh, let's just read a couple. Uh, Liz says... All AI-generated pictures and images should have a watermark like a lab-grown diamond. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, Marianne, thanks for your comments as well. Also, Chien. I'm delighted to say uh, that Chris McCarty, our head of sport, is back from his holiday and joins me now on the line to give us the latest sporting headlines. And it's fair to say, Chris, that did you basically spend the whole weekend in front of the telly watching sport? Good morning, Georgia. Uh, no, I've got to be honest. I, I, I didn't. I, I tried to get as much as I could. I actually went down to Abu Dhabi. I was at UFC 294 on Saturday cool. night, which meant... I missed the Arsenal-Chelsea game, I missed the Sheffield United-Man United game, and I missed England-South Africa 
in the rugby. Rest assured, though, I was keeping an eye on it on various websites, but it was all about the MMA for me on Saturday night. Well, a very cool event indeed. And um, I imagine the audiences, were, uh, they're getting bigger, aren't they? Every single year, the popularity yeah, of the sport is staggering. It's, it's quite something, Georgia. I went back, I went, oh, what are we talking now? A couple of years back during uh, the, the last time I think Conor McGregor fought. Uh, and it's massive now. I was told by one of the organisers, tickets sold out for UFC 294 inside two days. Wow. So that tells you just... Uh, the level of intrigue, the level of interest in MMA and UFC in particular, because it was a great night for Islam Makachev, a great night for Hamzat Shemaev uh, on Saturday down there in Abu Dhabi. So, yeah, it's here to stay. Fight Island, Dana White, the UFC president, he loves it. Huge money's been spent to bring it, and you can understand why. I would imagine DCT down there in Abu Dhabi, absolutely delighted. It's a full house at the Etihad Arena. A lot of money being spent on hotel rooms and F&B around Yaz Island. So, yeah, I think right now you put UFC right up there as one of the success stories in sport right here in the United Arab Emirates. Meanwhile, another hugely important sport, of course, is the cricket. And there is no stopping India in the World Cup. Uh, sadly, can't say the same for, for my team. No, nope. <laughs> nope. England atrocious. So they are defending champions. But, my goodness, I just don't know what's happened to England. They were thrashed by South Africa, uh, more on those two nations, and and I'm sure in a few moments' time. But yeah, England, defending champions, beaten by 229 runs by the Proteus. I guess the big story yesterday, though, India against New Zealand. India making it five wins from five. Virat Kohli with a wonderful, a masterful knock of 95. And what about this for a start? That has taken his runs in the tournament up to 354, Georgia. He is averaging 118. He is underlining once again why form is temporary, class is permanent. He is in the sweet spot right now. Five wins from five. India beat New Zealand down in Damasala by four wickets. And they will take some stopping. The team that beats India in this Cricket World Cup will win the World Cup. I would give it to them now. I think they have been absolutely fantastic over the course of the first couple of weeks of this Cricket World Cup. More to look forward to today? Yeah, Pakistan, Afghanistan today, 12.30. Of course, Afghanistan are still celebrating a lot of respects. Their victory over England last week. Uh, but Pakistan, we're into not quite last chance saloon, but they need to get some victories and some performances together. So I'm expecting a real good match in this one. I'll edge it to Pakistan. But one thing we know about this Cricket World Cup, and as it's been proven over the course of the opening couple of weeks, that you can, uh, well, you, you never uh, back. Uh, you can always expect the unexpected when it comes to this tournament. So, whilst, yes, I'm expecting Pakistan to win. I know Afghanistan have got plenty of firepower and they'll make it tough for Pakistan a little later. And in many ways, we actually got the result we expected on Saturday night in the Rugby World Cup oh, semi-final, yeah. but it was a nail-biting finish. Unbelievable. Credit where credit's due. I think a lot of people had written England off heading in to their Rugby World Cup semi-final against the Springboks, the defending champions, South Africa. England were magnificent. Steve Borthwick deserves an awful lot of credit. They pushed South Africa all the way. Eventually, it was that, you know, last couple of minutes, Andre Pollard with the penalty to give South Africa that 16-15 victory. A lot of people thought it would be far more comfortable. So England deserve a crumb of, I guess, well, more than a crumb. They deserve an awful lot of respect. They'll take a crumb of comfort from pushing South Africa all the way. But it's knockout rugby, Georgia. And ultimately, England are heading home from France in the final this coming Saturday in Paris. It will be the Springboks, South Africa, taking on New Zealand in what is a repeat, lest we forget, of that emotional final in 1995, apartheid, Nelson Mandela, we remember all of those scenes. So, yeah, roll on Saturday night should be an absolute humdinger. Yeah, now let's uh, look at football. As you mentioned a little earlier, there were wins for Man City and Liverpool, but Arsenal dropped points, didn't they? Yeah, they did. A 2-2 draw with Chelsea. That, uh, I guess, in a lot of respects, a game of the weekend for the English Premier League. Chelsea actually were cruising in this one. They were 2-0 up into the final 15 minutes. A mistake by Robert Sanchez, the Chelsea goalkeeper, allowed Declan Rice to pull one back and then Leandro Trossard with a fine second for Arsenal. So, two apiece, a good result for Chelsea. They'll be a little disappointed they didn't pick up the three points, but they're certainly moving. They're trending in the right direction under Mauricio Pochettino for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal. 
it's disappointing. And I know we're still early stages of this title race, but you just don't want to be dropping points, even to a side as good on their day as Chelsea can be. So, yeah, disappointment for Arsenal. As you say, win for Liverpool in the Merseyside derby against Everton. Man City, not at their best against Brighton, but still good enough. So, you know, from this weekend, underlining once again that Man City and Liverpool, I think, are the two teams that will emerge as the two teams uh, at the top of the Premier League come the end of the campaign. 30 seconds to go. It wasn't a good weekend for Lewis Hamilton either, was it? What's going on no, there? No, it certainly was not. Yeah, Max Verstappen, 50th win, 50th career victory for the Dutchman for Red Bull. But the big story, Lewis Hamilton finishing in second with Mercedes. They rolled out an upgraded car for this US Grand Prix over in Texas. And well, what happened? He was found to have had an illegal underfloor skid blocks. That's what they're claiming. It didn't fit in with the parameters of the rules. Therefore, six hours after the fact, Lewis Hamilton, as well as Ferrari's Charles Leclerc, disqualified from the US Grand Prix. So one step forward, two steps back from Mercedes. The big story with four races to go. Verstappen's already champion, and he's been doing what he's been doing all season long, and that is winning Formula One races. Chris McCarty finished in style. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Lovely sports headlines there from our head of sport, Chris McCarty. He will be back on your airwaves from 5pm with your drive time show off script. Of course, uh, Robbie and Sonal joining him as well. But yeah, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.